that may not be related to comics, but encompass other genre interests. I am Andrew Leyland, co-host of Hey Kids Comics, and this is another delve into the Palace of Glittering Delights, my little side project. If you're only here for the comics, feel free to move on. No harm, no foul. I envision these shows as being more rambling streams of consciousness with little editing or scripting. Today's episode came about purely because I have been on late, Rewatching various episodes of Jerry Anderson's foray into live-action television UFO and Space 1999. My reinvigorated interest came about due to Archive.org, uploading every issue of Starlog magazine to their site for us to download and devour for free. Uh, I heartily recommend you go and check them out. There's some, uh, some interesting articles. in there. There's a, an awful lot of the early issues, which is uh, what I've been reading, uh, 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 pretty much devoted to, to Space 1999. A lot of Star Trek in there and mention of this new thing called Star Wars as well. And uh, I had forgotten how big Space 1999 was when it debuted. This led to a renewed interest in UFO and Starlog also covered this in an article in an early issue. I think it was around issue 7 or issue 9. I forget exactly what number. That um, They also published an episode guide in, in alphabetical order for some reason that incorrectly stated the series was created in 1972 on more than one occasion, rather than the more factually correct 1969. Rereading these issues led me to check out some episodes, of uh, which I haven't watched in many, many years. I haven't watched UFO or Space 1999. And this ultimately led to this, where I ramble incoherently um, about the first episodes of both shows. I'm, I'm loath to call them the pilot episodes, largely because both shows received a series order pretty much straight off the bat, so there was no pilot in the, the strictest sense of, of the word. Jerry Anderson, I suppose we should give a, a bit of, of introduction to, to Mr. Anderson, for those not in the know, was a, a seminal and prolific producer of children's television in the 1960s, making a slew of puppet shows, or rather super marionation, as he preferred that they were called, shows aimed at kids. Three of these, Stingray, Thunderbirds, and my personal favourite as a child, Captain Scarlet, and the Misterons, were on constant rotation in the children's TV schedules when I was a nipper, regularly cropping up over the summer holidays. My recollection is that, that Stingray was the more regularly repeated of the three, but that just may be my memory cheating. I know I always preferred when Captain Scarlet was on, but you know, maybe that was me. Captain Scarlet was a little bit darker than the other shows. While still, you know, being purely aimed at children, it was a little more edgy, I suppose, to use a, a popular term. By the late 60s, though, Anderson and his wife, Sylvia, had tired of marionettes and were itching to get into live action. Following the science fiction motion picture, which was entitled Journey to the Far Side of the Sun in some territories, but called Doppelganger in others, the Andersons, figuring they could repurpose some of the props and sets used in that film, pitched a series called UFO to Lord Lou Grade, the then head of ITC. 
doppelganger had a few issues scientifically, a precursor, one would think, to the problems that would plague Space 1999. And lead actor Roy Finnis, fresh off his stint as architect David Vincent in Quinn Martin's The Invaders, was a little stiff, but it's not a bad little sci-fi flick. It's much better than ITC's Saturn Three from later in the 70s. Anyway, Gray had a reputation of giving his creative types a free hand, provided the concept was viable enough to sell into worldwide syndication, and an order of 26 episodes was duly drawn up. Which is why I say I I didn't want to refer to these as the pilot episodes, because they weren't really. The first episode of UFO was entitled Identified. It was written by Tony Barwick, Jerry and Sylvie Anderson, and directed by Jerry Anderson himself. I made a couple of loose notes um, for both shows regarding the premise of the shows, the look, the hardware, always the most important part of, of any Jerry Anderson production, the characters, and the music, again, another big part of a Jerry Anderson show, and then my, my final opinion my final verdict on the pilots of both episodes. I'm not really going to go into the series, if that is even a word, in any great depth. This is more just looking at the two episodes that I happened to watch this week. The premise of UFO, or UFO, as it was pronounced by the characters, is simply another Cold War, War of the Worlds hybrid. In the late 1960s, it is discovered that aliens have been coming to Earth and kidnapping humans for reasons unknown. After finally managing to obtain undeniable proof of this insidious invasion, the governments of the Earth managed to stop disagreeing long enough to fund a covert organisation to combat the alien menace. Utilising the 60s penchant for funky acronyms, this top-secret protector of Earth was entitled SHADOW, the Supreme Headquarters Alien Defence Organisation, and it took ten years to set up and become fully operational. It is now the then-future of 1980, and SHADOW is under the command of US Air Force Commander Ed Straker. Every week, the show would depict the aliens up to nefarious deeds and SHADOW's attempt to thwart them. To be fair, this premise description doesn't really give the show credit for its adult nature and themes. The opening of the pilot, identified, begins with the rather brutal, for the time, on-camera killing of a young woman, and in the episode's denouement we find out another woman, who was with her, the sister of one of the lead characters, was harvested for her organs. Anderson was pretty much setting his style out earlier. This was not a kid's show, although it had plenty of kid appeal. One of the failings of UFO, generally, was that we never really did find out what the aliens wanted, where they came from, or even their species name. They really were the epitome of the faceless enemy. Straker makes a few guesses at their origins and reasons for doing what they're doing in the episode's conclusion, but none of this was ever really substantiated or followed up upon. Followed upon? Followed upon in the uh, subsequent 25 episodes of the show. The look of the show and the opening of the episode in general sets out one of Anderson's great strengths as a producer. Along with his wife, he tried to give the show a very futuristic look. UFO, set in the then far distant 1980, does deserve plaudits for at least attempting to give the characters clothing that wasn't the 70s but wasn't the 60s either. For the men, pants with waistcoats attached like an all-in-one jumpsuit and three-quarter length frock coats were apparently the in thing and ties were out. No one ever wore a tie in UFO. The women wore similar outfits apart from shadow personnel who wore very figure-hugging jumpsuits. All the women tended to have big hair as well. It's all very kitschy 
But to me, that's that's part of the show's appeal. It's one of the things I can see people being put off by, but I quite like what Sylvia Anderson thought future fashion ten years hence would be like. Star Trek seems to have become this kind of futuristic 60s kind of thing, this kind of retro future that does kind of look a little bit dated nowadays, but doesn't look dated at the same time and, and it's the same with Batman the animated series and Blade Runner as well is, is very retro future isn't it um, for some reason in UFO it doesn't quite come off as well as it does in Batman or Blade Runner or even Star Trek it, it just screams 70s it was a brave stylistic choice but ultimately I don't know that it's one that paid off I quite like it though I think that, that some of it looks quite good especially later on in the show when they get Straker out of his brown and beiges and into the darker blue and, and black outfits that he would wear later. They suited him much better. With his blonde hair, he looked like a pint of Guinness. Anyway, Shadow has three lines of defence against the aliens. The first is Moonbase, populated by a crew of three inordinately sexy women, all clad in silver jumpsuit, and for some reason, purple wigs. Who knew that purple wigs would become a thing? There are also three fighter pilots stationed on Moonbase at all times. UFO watching the pilot, the pilot, there you go, I've just called it the pilot. Watching the first episode, it's very clear that UFO very much wants to have its cake and eat it in regards to the gender roles. Whilst there is a woman in command of Moonbase, which was quite progressive for the time, the fighter pilots are all men, like women aren't allowed to be fighter pilots, and none of the men were required to perform a strip tease in the opening instalment, as opposed to the women two of which are seen on Moonbase in various states of undress within the first ten minutes of the show. There's no escaping as well that there are some incredibly sexist moments in the opening episode, and the character of Alec Freeman is a complete lech. The Andersons may have predicted some things correctly, but the rise of sexual harassment in the workplace wasn't one of them. The three fighters on Moonbase are called Interceptors, logically enough, because their job is to intercept the UFO before it reaches Earth. And should they fail, not impossible, as the three interceptor fighters only have one missile each, the second line of defence is Skydiver. It did seem to me in watching this, this opener again for the first time in, in about at least a decade, that if the UFOs really wanted to get past Earth's defences, they'd simply send four UFOs. Anyway, Skydiver, despite the name, is a fleet of underwater submarines populated like Moonbase by a unisex crew, which launches fighter from its nose cone, with the call sign Sky One, and that is charged with taking out the UFO should the Moonbase interceptors fail. Should Sky One fail, the final defence is a fleet of Shadow Mobiles, giant armoured tanks that confront the UFO on Earth. The characters of UFO were one of the things that the show was criticised for, with numerous brickbats thrown at the actors for being like puppets. An obvious dig at Anderson's other work. Whilst a cursory examination may reveal this to be the case, further viewings put lie to this statement. Commander Straker, played by Ed Bishop, is an excellent character, and the only one to appear in every episode of the show. Straker is an obsessed man in the first episode, driven, hard-assed, and probably a real pain to work for. Bishop, though, I thought was excellent in the role, and as the series progressed, we would learn a lot about him and how he came to be. The other characters in the series come and go. The first episode presents Alec Freeman, who I just mentioned, played by George Sewell, as the second banana. But later on, the series was add a more conventional leading man type in Paul Foster, played by Michael Billington. 
Gabrielle Drake was the leader of Moonbase, Gay Ellis, and numerous other characters drop in and out of the opener, some of whom will appear regularly, some of whom will simply disappear. It's quite a large ensemble cast, and to be fair, they don't all get a look-in in this first episode. Billington, for example, doesn't even appear. But Anderson gets credit for the cast being multiracial and multinational. The aliens as mentioned, are rarely featured. We learn that they have green skin due to the liquid they have to breathe to enable them to function in Earth's atmosphere, so they're straight out of the little green men handbook. The hardware, however, is the best thing about any Anderson show, and the hardware in UFO was some of the best of any of Anderson's shows. Starting with the titular UFO, these cylindrical silver discs look like flying ashtrays with domed roofs. They look magnificent as they spin and weave across the sky and are incredibly manoeuvrable in both space and an atmosphere. Skydiver is a gorgeous submarine and Sky One, another great piece of design work looking like a snub-nosed fighter jet. Watching it launch from underwater into the air is a magnificent effect. In fact, all the effects in the show are so far ahead of their time it makes other shows of the era, including Star Trek, look very limited. Moonbase and the Interceptors are also pretty cool looking, although the idea of only having one missile each does seem a bit limited. Granted, if the Interceptors had stopped a UFO arriving every week, the episodes would have been very short. The blending of live action and model work in the opening episode is sublime, be it UFO crashes and explosions, interceptor attacks or skydivers, underwater antics. Anderson knew how to keep the young boys entertained whilst their dads were eyeing up the moon-based totty. Of special note, a UFO attack on a moving car with motorcycle episode in this episode's pre-credit sequence blends live action stunt work with models that is absolutely magnificent by 1970s standards and still looks pretty damn good today. In addition to the space vehicles and costumes, the cars of UFO were also futuristic. Sleek roadsters with gull-wing doors, the vehicles were actually further cast-offs from Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. They don't really appear much in Identified, but are seen a lot in subsequent episodes. Needless to say, all of these made pretty decent corgi toys back in the day. The music of UFO is a mixture of 60s jazz and electronica and was by Barry Gray, who composed some of the most memorable themes on television. UFO has one of the catchiest themes in TV history, and the opening credits are a textbook example of a fast-paced, action-based credit sequence to draw the audience in. The music in the episode itself varies from incredibly cheesy, such as the scene where Alec Freeman laviciously ogles a female operative, to the exciting when the Interceptor pilots launch. As with some other Anderson shows, some music was repurposed from earlier productions. The end credit theme to UFO, for example, is very similar to a piece in the aforementioned Journey to the Far Side of the Sun movie, but on the whole the score is pulse-pounding and exciting and occasionally trippy. Grey could, on occasion, fall into slightly cheesy, and he does in this opening episode, but again, the keech is part of the appeal of the show, in my opinion. The final verdict on the opening episode of UFO is that it is a mixture of fast-paced action and overly expository dialogue. There's a scene in the middle where Straker gives a dressing down to a shadow operative named Keith Ford that is there purely to explain the premise of the show. That said, watching this again for the first time in years, I really did thoroughly enjoy it. It's possibly an acquired taste. The fashions and some of the music are undeniably dated. But the show itself is a much underrated example of British sci-fi television. The many different locations also add to the allure of the series. Shadow is located underneath a film studio, which runs cover for the government work, and the moon base and submarine settings also lend themselves to future storylines. Despite the overall product looking a little 
70s. It's hugely entertaining and actually features a very downbeat ending in which we discover that skydiver pilot Peter Carlin's sister, who was abducted in the opening moments of the show, was the unwilling heart donor of the alien that was captured by Shadow at the end. It's the first downbeat ending of the series, but it's far from the last. It shows a number of similarities with earlier Anderson projects, such as Thunderbirds. How the Interceptor pilots get to their fighter jets is exactly the same as the Tracy boys, but the tone and theme of the show are not exactly child-friendly, whilst the hardware and special effects are purely kid eye candy. Anderson does deserve credit for trying to do something different, but I can see how the schizophrenic nature of the show, the war between kid-friendly action and deeper, more mature characterization, gave TV schedulers problems as the series went on. Rather famously, numerous episodes of UFO were removed from transmission in the regular slots and were only screened after 11 o'clock at night due to the content. They seem quite tame by today's standards, but this was racy stuff in its day. The pilot for UFO, identified, is available in numerous places. It's on DVD, I presume it's on Netflix and and such. Uh, It is definitely on YouTube in its entirety for free. So if you want to go and check it out, just do a quick search on UFO identified full episode and, and it will show up for you. I recommend it. As I say, it's a quiet taste. You may find it a little bit slow by today's standards, but it's certainly worth sticking with. And whilst you may not want to check out all 26 episodes of the show, uh, I certainly recommend episodes like Time Lash, The Long Sleep, A Question of Priorities, Confetti Check A-OK, and Mindbender as probably the highlights of the show. Worth checking out, if you're so inclined. Space 1999 was Anderson's follow-up to UFO was actually born from the ashes of that series. As mentioned, UFO's transmission was botched in the UK where its tone made it difficult to schedule and the vagaries of regional programming meant different areas got different episodes at different days and times. It was bounced around the schedules, being broadcast in a wildly haphazard order that made the continuity, already a little flaky, difficult to follow. The show was syndicated to the United States in 1972, where it became a ratings hit in the New York area. Anderson was asked for a second series, but more based around the moon base, and Anderson started drawing up plans. The project was just as suddenly abandoned when ratings fell slightly, but Anderson, having spent some money and time in pre-production and development, asked Lou Grade if they could reformat the show and use the designs for another project. That project became Space 1999. Again, a full series was commissioned, Sight Unseen, and the opening episode, Breakaway, was written by George Bellack, although Chris Penfold apparently did some rewrites, and it was directed by Leo H. Katzin. Apparently, Katzin's meticulous shooting style led to the opening episode being grossly over time and budget, and Anderson himself was required to rewrite and reshoot certain scenes to bring the episode down from over two hours to the most standard 50 minutes. The first episode establishes the premise of the show. On September 13th, 1999, the International Space Research and Exploration Facility Moonbase Alpha has also become a dumping ground for Earth's atomic waste. New station commander John Koenig wastes no time getting down to work and quickly discovers running an international moonbase involves an awful lot of bureaucracy, as well as dealing with some very tedious politicians. However, Professor Victor Bergman informs John that other considerations are informing the Politico's decisions. A virus picked up by some pilots that is preventing the launch of the Meta Probe, a delicate political situation as the planet Meta is approaching Earth, and the Meta Probe is time-sensitive. 
Koenig's investigations lead him to conclude that the nuclear waste is very hazardous and the moon is one big bomb. Of course, this is all just foreshadowing, and sure enough, the waste explodes with such force it blows the moon out of Earth's orbit and sends it hurtling through space. As it accelerates away, the decision is made not to even try and get back to Earth, and as the last transmission from Earth's fade away, it's clear Earth will not even try a rescue of the moon base Alphans, as the damage to Earth has been far too great. Koenig wonders if Meta is where the future will lie. Whilst Breakaway is undeniably an exceptionally handsome-looking piece of television, it lacks the humanity of UFO. It all feels very serious. The actors are serious. The situation is grave. There's a lot of political manoeuvring and attention paid to budgets and other adult considerations. Koenig is not a traditional hero in this first episode. He's more a man who's just caught between doing his job and doing the right thing, and it tends to lean more towards doing his job. He seems more interested in, in getting the Metaprobe launched on time and answering to his superiors than he does in actually, you know, doing what's right. As with the UFO, this is clearly not aimed square at children, but a more adult audience. Maybe adult's the wrong word, maybe a, a family audience. It's almost too serious in places. They could do with lightening up a bit here and there. The look of the show, again, as with UFO, was given a distinct look to it, whilst it was mandated by the backers that the show be more spacey and less Earth-bound than UFO, so we don't get any funky Earth fashions. The Alphans all wore uniforms that make the costumes of Star Trek the motion picture look exciting and vibrant. It being the 70s, everything is beige and brown, and gone is the more colourful aesthetic of UFO. Yet this oddly adds to its appeal. The uniforms look like bizarre ur-hostess costumes, replete with plastic belts that make everybody, no matter how thin they are, look like they've got a layer of flab around their midsection. And fleurs apparently never went out of style in the Alphan version of the future. However, squint, and you'll see that these uniforms are the precursor to the outfits in Star Trek The Next Generation. There are colour bandings to highlight rank, same as Next Gen. The same bland colour scheme of Alpha is also present in Next Generation sets. And the only thing that sets these pyjama suits and the Next Generation ones apart is that the Next Generation had the decency to make them all black instead of beige. The design of Alpha also follows a very 70s aesthetic. It's a largely colourless and bland place with no fleur, as they put it, in office space. But again, this lends itself to the show. Moonbase Alpha is a serious place full of serious people, so of course the decor represents that. It's all a lot more dated than UFO, despite being made afterwards, but it sets the look and the feel of the show up perfectly. As with UFO, this may be another example of acquired taste, but the series has to once again gain points for not trying to be Star Trek. The problem with that is it may have actually gone too far the other way in not trying to be Star Trek. It's ended up being so far removed from likeable humanistic characters of the original Trek that the characters in, in Space 1999 can come across as a little bland. The leads in the pilot are, as mentioned, Commander John Koenig, played by Martin Landau, and Dr. Helena Russell, played by Barbara Bain, both of whom had worked together previously on Mission Impossible and were husband and wife at this time. Barry Morse plays Professor Victor Bergman, who, it seems, is professor of anything the writers need him to be professor of. Professor of science, I believe I've seen him referred to. Landau and Bain seem to have made the decision to whisper all their dialogue, as this gives everything they say a feeling of 
The feeling that this is 2001 for television permeates every aspect of the production. The characters, as I've said, are serious people. Serious situations, and boy, do they let the audience know it. It's like they watched Star Trek and decided to all play Spock. Landau, in this opening instalment, as I've already mentioned, isn't really much of a hero figure. He's just caught between the political situation and doing his job, and he never really ignites as a character in this opening segment. There's never a moment where he stands up to be counted, where he has a hero moment, a a moment of realisation that this is what needs doing. Even his decision to not even try and make it back to Earth seems like it should have been challenged by somebody, but it's not. The rest of Alpha is populated by the usual mix of multinational personalities, some of which will be back on a semi-regular basis, some of which won't. The only two that make an impact, really, are Alan Carter, played by Nick Tate, an amiable Australian who seems to be the only member of the cast capable of emotion, and Roy Detrice, who plays the odious politician Commander Simmons so well you actually want him to be a regular to, to give the show an antagonist. Everyone's just so nice. Simmons is brought back in a later episode entitled Earthbound, which is satisfying because he did get trapped on Moonbase Alpha when it was blown into space. And his ultimate fate in that episode is satisfying, but I can't help but feel we lost uh, an antagonist in the show. The hardware and effects work is even better than UFO, although there isn't as many vehicles to, to sell as toys. The Eagle spaceship is one of the best designed in all of TV sci-fi and looks like it could and would have been designed by a NASA that carried on with space exploration after the space age came to a halt in the early 70s. The Eagles look magnificent. They're well designed and they look fantastic in all those times that they're forced to crash into the lunar surface. Where the episode scores big is in the design and model work. The script has moments and I'm deliberately ignoring all the scientific problems of Earth being blasted out of orbit with such force that it travels through space at such speed that it can traverse galaxies. But it's in the action that the show peaks. Whilst it's slow moving for the most part, when the explosions and crashes happen, they happen spectacularly. I'd put anything in this show, special effects wise, up against anything in other sci-fi shows of the era and even later. To be fair, I think the model work in the show stands up much better than many contemporary CGI special effects sequences. Barry Gray again scores the episode, continuing his relationship with Anderson, and the score is, as the show might suggest, a lot more serious than UFO. There are no cheesy beats or pauses for a sneaky look at a lady's backside in this episode, and Gray doesn't really disappoint. The theme is pretty much the only nod to the 70s. We get a great tune with a very 70s bass line, accompanying a fast bass selection of clips from the opening episode in the opening credits, something the new Battlestar Galactica would rip off blatantly. The verdict on Breakaway is that serious is very much the watchword. The show has been called Ibsen in space, and this is pretty much a decent description of Breakaway. It's very ponderous, everyone is very po-faced, the humour is non-existent, and in fact all of the characters seem to be vaguely robotic. Landau gets to emote a bit, if shouting is considered emoting, but Bane and Morse are almost comatose. And yet, this opening episode is compelling viewing. It's, and here's that word again, serious science fiction, slightly undercut by its silly premise. But Anderson again deserves credit for making a show that is so lacking in the more juvenile elements of sci-fi. There are no wise-cracking androids like Tweaky from Buck Rogers, no no camp villainy like Dr. Smith from Lost in Space, and there are no real good guys or bad guys like in Battlestar Galactica, the reimagined version. However, there's also very little fun in the characters. 
all of the excitement and action comes from the explosions and special effects, which are, as noted, spectacular. The problem with Space 1999 is it also never addresses how Earth is coping without its moon, and this episode never addresses its own script issues with the meta-planet which is left dangling at the end of this episode. Ultimately, I greatly enjoyed watching both of these. Again, there's something to them that modern TV sci-fi doesn't even attempt. High concept ideas and big issues. The recent remake of Battlestar Galactica was actually much closer to Space 1999 than it was to its own predecessor, exploring what it would really be like to be a bunch of humans trapped together in a confined space for an indeterminate amount of time, but mixed up with explosions and space battles. I like big ideas and high concepts as much as the next guy, but sometimes amidst all the ponderous examinations of the human condition and allegorical subtext about terrorism, I like to see eagles crash landing and UFOs blowing up. Space 1999 may have had its problems, but it was a more ambitious series than, say, Star Trek Voyager. UFO may be kitschy in places, but it's more fun than the remake of V. Sci-fi television, like a lot of our post-millennial entertainment, seems to have forgotten the word fun. Personally, I am of the opinion that UFO is the better series. It was open to a wider variety of stories, and it's sad that it ran for only 26 episodes. But while Space 1999 was ponderous and, say it with me, serious, it also has a certain appeal. Next time you see them on Netflix, I urge you to check them out. If you're of the right frame of mind, they're very entertaining. As with UFO, the pilot episode for Space 1999, Breakaway is available on YouTube in full, for free. Again, if you just do a search for Space 1999 Breakaway full episode, it will show up for you, for your entertaining viewing. Space 1999's better episodes are generally considered to be The Infernal Machine, Mission of the Darians and Dragon's Domain, as well as a second season episode called The Bringers of Wonder. The second season of Space 1999, like the second season of Book Rogers after it, would completely jettison the concept of the first season, retooling the show to become more Monster of the Week science fiction than the rather serious 2001 rip-off of the first year. Like War of the Worlds as well, which became a completely different series in its second season. The second season of Space 1999 isn't quite as good, although it may be a little bit more colourful if you're going to watch it with children. And that about wraps it up for this quick journey into 70s TV sci-fi that you may not be familiar with. I hope you enjoyed listening to me waffle. I know I always enjoy talking about this stuff. And again, any future episodes of The Palace of Glittering Delight purely depend on whether people enjoy hearing me witter about stuff that isn't comics. I've been Andrew Leyland, and I'll see you whenever the next time is. Or unless you want to join us over in Hey Kids Comics, you're always welcome. Take care.